Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. No introduction to today's show because we have a terrific panel and lots of stories uh, to cover. So let's get right to it. Starting with Tamar Hallerman, who is my Tuesday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, the senior reporter at the AJC. Tamar, I, I have to tell you that as I've been giving some thought as we kind of shut down the final week of Political Rewind on Friday to some of the um, shows that have had the most impact for me personally. And one of them involved you. You and I and our panel were on the air live on the afternoon of January 6, 2021. We were covering, we thought, the runoff uh, election results of the Ossoff um, uh, Warnock uh, race. And in fact, as we were on the air, the insurrectionists began invading the Capitol. And because you had vast experience covering Washington and, and the Hill, and I spent a lot of time up there, we could sort of picture and talk about, as it unfolded, the places where it was happening. It was an extraordinary afternoon tomorrow that I will not forget. Likewise, oh, such an emotional day. I remember <clears throat> we were talking about, I believe, Raphael Warnock had just been declared the winner in that race. It was looking like John Ossoff was going to win uh, his race, too. And I remember, Bill, you would cut into the show every five or ten minutes. And it, and it started with, wow, there's some protesters who made it up the the west front of the Capitol, which was very unusual. Like, okay, discussion continues about the Senate races. He cut in. Well, they broke through a window. Oh my gosh, they're in the rotunda now. And I just remember feeling the the shock in the moment and trying to process it all, keep my cool, be able to still talk about these Senate races. But for me, the Capitol is a place I spent 10 years of my career and it means so much to me. And Bill, I mean, you handled it with such um, grace and you were so smooth <laughs> in weaving all of that in in such a, a really emotional time and I, I won't forget that day. It was it you were you were pretty you were pretty good too. We were it was a wonderful uh, uh, experience, terrible event, but to realize how important it is to have live uh, a program a live program on that. So I thought about that and I'm glad you're here today. Margaret Coker is back with us. <clears throat> Excuse me, Editor-in-Chief of The Current, which is based down in Savannah. Margaret, you do a lot of reporting, reporting on what's happening down on the coast, but you also carry stories about the rest of the state and nationally. And Margaret, I, I was thinking about you because you and I, at one point in our careers, had the same boss, basically. We both worked for Cox. <laughs> you were at the paper. Uh, I, of course, was at WSB-TV. You went on to a big career at the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. You worked in international uh, uh, international reporting from countries all over uh, the world. And we are so lucky to have you back in Savannah overseeing uh, The Current, which people can read at thecurrentga.org. Hi, Margaret. 
Yeah, thanks for that, Bill. It's been um, a pleasure to have you in our corner as we've been trying to fill the news vacuums in this part of, of the state. You know, it's it's always remarkable to me, it's, no matter how far I've roamed, um, how much I do love Georgia. And telling people who aren't from here just how big of a state it is. Geographically speaking, we are the largest state east of the Mississippi. You know, we have the largest military base here in coastal Georgia, east of the Mississippi as well. Our 100 miles of the coastline is some of the most unique ecosystems in the whole country. And we have some of the richest and poorest zip codes as well. I mean, we all deserve to have in-depth, independent uh, news in our lives and uh, political rewind has helped spread that message across um, to our listeners and our and our neighbors. So thank you for all that you've done, Bill. Well, we've loved having you here. Audrey Haynes is with us, professor of political science at the University of Georgia. Audrey, I have very fond. You've been with us for a long time, and I have memories of an election night where you, Amy Steigerwald, and I sat up until I think. 1.30 in the morning in the uh, GPB, the studio that we uh, used to uh, work out of at GPB. Which election was that, Audrey? Do you re- was it wasn't 2016, was it? Was it 2018? Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp? I think so, yeah, because we were all talking about um, how well Brian Kemp was overperforming um, a lot of other Republicans, even at that point in time, and trying to look at, you know, you know, at that moment, what was going on, um, what was happening on the ground that created that that outcome, and and I would just add too, um, you know, Bill, you're one of the reasons that applied politics has been so successful at the University of Georgia because if it had not been for being on your show, especially pre-COVID, when I would drive into Atlanta and I would get to sit on that panel and meet all the movers and shakers of politics in Georgia. Those are people who became uh, my friends, um, and these are people from all swaths of political life, and so many of them were gracious, including yourself, and would come all the way to the University of Georgia to talk to students. And, you know, I really believe that without access to those people and building those relationships, my program wouldn't be um, half as good as it is today. I, I, I think we have to give you credit for what a wonderful job you've done with the Applied Politics Program, which helps train students for careers in politics. But thank you for saying that. Tammy Greer, I saved you for last for a reason. For the last few appearances on this show, we used to say Tammy Greer, political science professor, Clark Atlanta University. And for the past few shows, we haven't said that. We've just said, also joining us, political scientist Tammy Greer, because you weren't at liberty to talk about a very big move. Now you are, Tammy. So share it with our listeners. Uh, Starting in August, in the fall, I will be, I will join uh, Georgia State University uh, in the Andrew Young School of Public Studies in the Department of Public Management and Policy um, as the director of the Bachelor's in interdisciplinary studies, social entrepreneurship program, as well as a clinical assistant professor. Congratulations. That's such exciting news, Tammy. We're very happy for you. Thank you. you. All right. Let's get right to it. Um, Tamar, uh, no one in uh, certainly local news, and I would argue maybe nationally too, has followed the Fonnie Willis uh, investigation more closely than you and your colleague Bill Rankin have. 
Um, and now there's an interesting development. Brad Raffensberger, of course, testified quite some time ago before the Fulton County Grand Jury. But we're learning today that, or we learned yesterday actually from a Washington Post story, that the uh, that representatives of the special counsel, lawyers who are working with Jack Smith on the DOJ investigation of Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, are in Atlanta to interview Raffensperger today. No doubt, the infamous phone call will be part of what they ask him about. Yeah, and we've long known that he was of interest to the special counsel's office. Of course, Brad Raffensperger was at the center of efforts to overturn the election results in Georgia. He was put under extraordinary amounts of pressure, uh, not only from former President Trump, but from many others in the state, like Senators Perdue and Loeffler, um, to try and overturn Joe Biden's victory. So it's no surprise that the special counsel wants to talk to him. What's been interesting is the long delay that it's taken to for for federal prosecutors to prosecutors to interview him. Um, we know that they've talked to other people in Georgia, many of the alternate electors, uh, I believe, last year. Um, so it's interesting that only now, um, years after the 2020 election, will they be hearing from the the Secretary of State. It'll be interesting to see how Georgia plays into any potential indictments down the road, should that happen from DOJ. And of course, it leads to questions about the kind of overlap that we could potentially see between the federal probe and the, the Fulton County investigation, which we're expected to hear indictment announcements in August. Um, there's been overlap, of course, with the fake electors. We know both teams are interested in that. Um, the, of course, the, the Raffensperger phone call with Trump is a centerpiece of Fonnie Willis's investigation locally. Um, there's nothing that would stop D.A. Willis or force her to stand down should DOJ decide it want to move forward with this. Uh, but it does create a really interesting dynamic um, and, and some decisions for both camps to make in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, we should point out that Jack Smith, he's been under some pressure and he's been criticized. He, he apparently decided to take on the, uh, uh, at least to move forward more expeditiously with the Trump withholding of presidential documents, which he which he has now charged Trump with 37 counts of felony crimes. Um, and but at but simultaneously he has been moving Margaret toward uh, decisions about you know efforts to overturn the election. And there are those who believe that now that he really is focusing on in on fake electors, he's turned two fake electors in Nevada who have now agreed, to uh, uh, some form of immunity in exchange for their testimony. There are people who believe this means that por portion of his investigation is coming to a conclusion as well. And Georgia certainly features into that. Well, it, it certainly does. And, you know, the men and women that were part of, of the alternate elector list here in Georgia, you know, they, they have not really seen any opprobrium internally from the state party or among their communities. You know, there um, we had our politics reporter, Craig Nelson, at the GOP state convention in Columbus earlier in this month. You know, one of those men, Ken Carroll, was um, on the executive board of, of the state party. Um, he was running for office again. He didn't get reelected. But of course, David Schaefer tops to, has, has topped the list of, of uh, Georgia's state Republican Party apparatus. 
we have our local congressman, um, uh, Buddy Carter, who takes pictures with some of the fake electors who um, live here in coastal Georgia. So there's, um, there is a reckoning to be had internally, I think, within um, the Georgia GOP. Um, the people that will be sent to the national convention, the Republican National Convention next year, are going to involve some some of these um, some of these names. So until there is uh, some sort of of I think recognition or conclusion of of these judicial uh, um, investigations. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that American can move on. I really don't think that Georgia's Republican Party can move on either. Um, Tammy, uh, we know through Tamar and Bill Rankin's reporting that Fannie Willis has given some form of immunity to a number of the fake electors who are being investigated here by the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. But I think I'm right that we don't know who uh, who exactly those people are. And um, I we do know, um, Tamar? Yeah, most of those are lower level people in the party. So uh, less okay. the people who organized the slate, not the David Schaefer's, but the, the lower level folks who signed on closer oh, to. Well, that thank you, because that's what I was leading to, Tammy. David Schaefer continues to be vulnerable uh, to a potential indictment. And, you know, it's interesting. Burt Jones, the lieutenant governor, was removed from Fonnie Willis's investigation um, by Judge Robert McBurney uh, because he felt there was a conflict of interest because Fonnie Willis had been part of a fundraiser for um, uh, one of Burt Jones, Burt Jones' general election opponent. But if the feds are investigating, I believe Burt Jones is suddenly vulnerable all over again. It's not going to be the same uh, situation for him at all, Tammy. Right. It's not going to be the same situation. Um, and luckily, in the United States, we have uh, the separation of power. So you have your federal laws and state laws. I think also, Bill, that um, I'm not sure if we really have given um, true thought in, um, in discourse or just in, uh, the conversation to how um, severe the actions of January 6th uh, were as well as these folks who uh, are fake electors and what that could, the damage that it could do to this Republic and this form of democracy that we have in the United States. It's also very interesting to me that the people who are supporting people who attempted to overturn an election uh, now have discussions, uh, interestingly, towing a line between supporting uh, democratic forms of governments across the, the world, at the same time kind of liking those leaders who are toppling democratic structures uh, around the world. So I am, I'm curious to see the outcome of this, because if we could, you know, put people in prison for carrying two ounces of marijuana for multiple <laughs> decades, yet someone who attempts to overturn the election in this republic form of government gets immunity or they don't have the same amount of time or consideration in the criminal justice system, then I think that that says something to the character of how we actually appreciate this form of government. Well, well, Tammy, you would uh, uh, concede that immunity in some cases, especially as Tamar points out, lower level uh, people, uh, is a time-honored tradition in prosecutors' offices to get to the bigger fish, right? So we don't want to 
we don't want to suggest that, that that's necessarily inappropriate, uh, but I know you didn't mean uh, to do that. Audrey, jump in on this. Well, you know, one of the things I would argue, and I'm the person who, while not um, not an expert in uh, a lot of uh, constitutional law and things like that, I, I am an expert in politics. And one thing that we're getting with not only the attention that uh, Jack Smith may be giving on top of what Fonnie Willis is doing is this surround sound. Think about it. I mean, even places that haven't been talking about the Trump indictment are now starting to talk about it. Um, in Iowa, with the presidential caucuses, a lot of evangelicals are talking about how we can turn to other people like, you know, Tim Scott, for example, or some of the other ones, uh, even Mike Pence. So this the effect has been suddenly, and I think it will continue to do so, that all of this attention will make people learn information that, believe it or not, they have either been resisting or they have not been exposed to because they don't hear it. Um, and with all of this activity, uh, my expectation is there'll be a lot more discussion and understanding of what everyone has mentioned. The, but, but the sheer importance of what happened. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Bill. Well, I just want to clarify something. Um, you would concede that your uh, uh, theory about how the indictments might affect voters has would apply much more to independent voters, uh, suburban voters, educated voters in a general, because what we've seen in all of the polling since the federal indictment against Trump is that he's only gained uh, in his lead over Ron DeSantis and the other. So it's more about a general election, I think, right? Well, it, you, I will tell you that a lot of that will have an impact in the general election. The primaries haven't started yet. You, When we see what happens in Iowa, um, that's a place where they start to um, potentially whittle away. In fact, there was a great discussion with some of the evangelicals in Iowa recently and uh, you start to see some change. Now, Trump has a core group of supporters, and some of the people that we've been talking about, you've talked about Lieutenant Governor, still attempt to appeal to that MAGA core, right? And we're involved in all of the things with the fake electors. Um, so there's that core that Trump has, uh, but like you said, independents, uh, Republicans who are not MAGA, and there's still plenty of them, um, they are looking elsewhere, um, and they talk about um, the fatigue that's going on. But I will tell you, as someone who studied presidential primaries for a long time, we're going to see some changes. And, you know, DeSantis is not a sure thing. There are so many people involved. You've got Chris Christie on the trail. But these cases um, that we're talking about will add to that effect. Um, okay, thank you for that. Tomorrow, let's move on to another story that uh, uh, relates to Brad Raffensperger. Um, he's been under a great deal of pressure from mostly Republicans because he said he's not going to do anything uh, uh, about the Dominion voting systems, uh, looking at what needs to be corrected until after the 2024 elections, not until 2025. But, but he has now sent a letter just this morning, uh, based on reporting in the jolt, to legislators calling on them to pass legislation next year that would make tampering with Georgia's election system a felony carrying a minimum sentence of 10 years. We should point out it's already a felony 
but the sentencing requirements are very much lower. Raffensperger says this, voting is the foundation of our democracy, and those who attempt to interfere with that fundamental right should be subjected to higher uh, penalties. And I can't help but thinking about Coffee County when we talk about this story tomorrow. Yeah, my mind went there, too, when I read this item in the jolt. And look, I think that the thinking here is that carrying a, a minimum sentence of 10 years will be a, a pretty good deterrent for folks to not be uh, be tampering with the, the state's election system. And as you mentioned, he's been under a ton of pressure lately. He's gotten criticism from several gubernatorial hopefuls from his party, including Kelly Leffler, uh, Burt Jones, and of course, Raffensperger himself. There's been, um, you know, chatter about whether he'll want to run for governor in 2026 as well. So they're they're all trying to show that they can one up one another in this issue of election security. Um, you know, the Leffler and, and Jones were, were criticizing him for not um, uh, updating the Dominion voting systems election software. Um, there were some updates that were pushed through, but but Raffensperger doesn't think they're battle tested. He, he noted how no other state has upgraded it so far, but his critics say that it leaves the state open to, um, you know, hacking from other people. Um, so this goes to show that Raffensperger um, certainly wants to stay in the fray, wants to stay in the conversation, and um, isn't going to take this criticism lying down. Yeah, I, I, Raffensperger, Audrey, has become really a fascinating figure in Georgia politics, not, um, not only the way he's uh, now saying, um, I, will, I will move when I think it's appropriate to, to change the Dominion software. In the meantime, let's have stiffer penalties for uh, uh, felonies of tampering. And then he challenges Donald Trump to a debate over the integrity of Georgia's elections. He's truly become a fascinating character in our politics. Yes, and he was just at the University of Georgia um, at a, um, an elections conference that we just had. And, and I would argue that he makes a point in so much of the discussion about the hacking. Remember, most of it is based on criticisms by one expert witness from um, you know, a case. And I would just argue that expert witnesses on either side, you know, do have, you know, a goal in which to share. Now, the the group that said that were were fine that they were resistant and you know there are lots of impediments to any kind of tampering um to this election system was a panel of people of expertise versus one individual who again may have been biased because they're an expert witness so ravensburger is simply defending based on facts and you know he has a following and i'm pretty sure that he is really thinking about running for governor i saw margaret had her hand yeah, I, I would say that outside of his professional responsibilities of, of running our uh, state elections, as well as running the Secretary of State's office, Raffensperger is showing himself to be a really astute politician. Because, in fact, if, if I think there are plenty of critics that will say that when it comes to the integrity of elections in counties, especially rural counties like Coffee County and Traitland County and other places that are outside of the media spotlight, it has taken an extraordinary amount of local activism or statewide activism for his office to actually act upon really compelling evidence that there was 
of tampering with elections um, back in 2020 and in 2022. And so for a, um, a man who's done an incredible amount for our state, it's also really important to note that as a human being and as a politician, he has every, um, you know, I think every motivation to show that his multi-million dollar voting system is is fair, accurate, and trustworthy because that is one of the crowning jewels that he can stand on for any new political campaign. And so there is evidence that we have trouble in certain counties in Georgia. There's not a whole lot of evidence that people are being held responsible for that right now. Um, Tammy, uh, and of course, all of this concern, there have been reports about the ability of of uh, malicious uh, interveners to hack into the system, possibly to change votes. Um, uh, it, you know, Audrey points out it's really uh, based on on the uh, testimony of of an individual. But the fact of the matter is, there are vulnerabilities. But what Raffensperger answers with is, it's almost impossible that this will happen. And Remember that in 2020, we had three full recounts of the vote, and it always turned out the same. Right. All right. And, and to the point, uh, I think it, it appears to me that Jones and Loeffler are intentionally attempting to conflate the issues um, to confuse uh, those who are not like embedded in this information all the time. So um, in, 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 in that sense, trying to have their cake and eat it, too while acknowledging their vulnerabilities and that action should be done, yet and still, it still goes along with the conspiracy theory of people are changing the votes. Um, and, and it's also, I think, important for us to note that no system is 100% proof. And so what we get um, and the best, um, whether it is redundancy um, in the system so that we can have full faith and confidence, and as you said, Bill, um, even if you had a hand count, there's still human error that could um, account for there. Uh, yet and still, the the outcome is remain the same. So it's important. I think what Raffensperger is doing is attempting to put back faith and trust in our electoral system. Um, and it's it's a shame that folks are, uh, from an intellectual standpoint as well as from a physical standpoint, attempting to. Uh, so distrust, mistrust, and um, insecurity in our electoral system. Um, okay, thank you for that conversation, everybody. Let's move on to another story that relates to uh, Georgia political uh, figure. Um, tomorrow we've uh, learned that Andrew Clyde, Congressman Andrew Clyde, who's one of those um, Freedom Caucus right-wingers uh, on the Hill, he has inserted language into an appropriations bill that would block the renaming of Lake Lanier and Buford Dam, which would be done by the Army Corps of Engineers since they oversee those uh, facilities, those, those particular uh, uh, venues. Um, and we, the Army Corps of Engineers hesitated. They started to think about renaming a while back. They pulled back. There was protest. But it isn't a dead issue. Uh, there are many people who do not want uh, who want to get rid of Confederate leaders' names being attached to uh, uh, various monuments, facilities, and the like. And now Andrew Clyde used an appropriations bill to block the effort completely. Um, and, and I want to talk first about that, but then the larger issue of how Republicans are using appropriations bills for similar factors. But you start us off, please, tomorrow. 
Well, I used to cover appropriations in my life before I uh, got to Georgia, so I have plenty to say about that. Look, um, appropriations bills are some of the only must-pass legislation on Capitol Hill, which is why it's such a prime target for folks who want to send message via policy riders. Plus, at a time when most policymaking is not happening on Capitol Hill, sometimes it's the only opportunity for lawmakers to be able to slip changes in. At the same time, it's a really great place to kind of grandstand and kind of try and do things to get your press release out and send out your message, knowing that at the end of the day, it's not what's what ultimately is going to be passed into law. And look, this is a spending bill that will need to pass the House, it'll need to pass the Senate, which is run by Democrats, and they'll need to hit a compromise at the end of the day to keep the government open. And ultimately, we find that with these spending bills, most of these so-called policy writers end up getting dropped at the 11th hour anyway. Um, but it's an interesting messaging point, and it's it's a good way to get your, your point across early on in a negotiation. And, you, you know, you play to your base. Uh, we're late for a break. When we come back, Margaret, you've got a renaming that could be taking place down in Savannah that I want to talk about, plus how other Republicans are using appropriations bills to uh, insert partisan mandates uh, into legislation. We'll do all that and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Political science professors Tammy Greer and Audrey Haynes and journalists Margaret Coker and Tamar Hallerman join me for today's Political Rewind. Margaret, we're talking about renaming uh, various uh, memorials and the like uh, that are named now for Confederate leaders. Down in Savannah, I read in The Current, there's an effort underway. I think you've got a committee that's come up with about 14 different possible names to rename Calhoun square after John C. Calhoun, of course. Margaret? Yeah, that's right. We are, are also going through our own sort of racial and historic reckonings here in Savannah, whereby John C. Calhoun is no longer an appropriate name for one of our beautiful downtown squares. And some of that has to do with the history of him being a slave owner, but some of it also has to do with his history of being a South Carolinian. And for people who don't understand the very deep rancor that we have in Savannah between us and Charleston. That is also a sticking point. And so we've had a, a citywide um, you know, um, discussion about what to rename the square. And uh, the city opened up the competition to residents um, to, to figure out what we want to look for in the future. And we have a short list now. So it has not been entirely um, without uh, I think, um, um, challenge in terms of whose naming rights uh, we're, we're finally going to choose. But we do have some really legendary people who come from Savannah who probably deserve the name more than a South Carolinian. Okay, well, we're going to watch. It'll be interesting. We'll read the current to uh, see what happens uh, down there. Um, 
Uh, Audrey, uh, tomorrow, let me come back to you on this first. Um, so we talk about other efforts by Republicans, mostly far-right Republicans, to insert uh, language into appropriations bills, which, as you point out, are the only necessary bills that Congress has to pass. And here are just some of the things that the far-right is trying to insert in spending bills. American military installations would be banned from having drag queen story hours for children. Women would have less access to mail-order abortion medication. The congressional office in charge of diversity and, and inclusion would be shuttered. Federal agencies would be barred from promoting critical race theory, and it goes on. And as you point out, Tamar, these are measures that are never going to pass the U.S. Senate, but they are a rallying cry for the base of the Republican Party and their messages that are being sent out from Capitol Hill to their supporters. At its core, and call me a cynic, every member of Congress, every elected official wants to be able to go to their constituents and say, look, I'm doing stuff. Reelect me. This is a great way to do it because you're not actually doing it. I mean, it's a messaging strategy, right? You're able to show, hey, I got this issue inside this must-pass spending bill that my base really cares about. Uh, but there's no way that most of this stuff is going to make it into law at the end of the day. These spending bills are a compromise between Democrats and Republicans um, at the end of the day. Often these folks, the Andrew Clydes of the world, the Freedom Caucus members would never vote for these spending bills at the end of the day. So that uh, reduces their clout in these spending bill debates at the end of the day. What's interesting to see is um, the areas that are in the crossfire now. For the longest time, the Defense Department budget, for example, was considered this sacred cow, where even if members had a million things to say about a controversial agency like the EPA, for example, they knew not to mess with the Defense Department. Um, for the longest time, DOJ was seen as one of those secret cows where really you don't want to mess with them too much either. And there's there's efforts now to bar security clearances for members of the intelligence community who, um, who warned about um, some of the Hunter Biden stuff. So it goes to show that now everything is in the political crosshairs. There are no more sacred cows in Washington. And it makes it really hard at the end of the day when the, do, the two parties do have to come together to strike an agreement to keep the government's lights on. It's going to make it that much harder to do that. Um, Tammy, two of the measures that I, I particularly was struck by are the one which would eliminate an office of diversity and inclusion, a congressional office, uh, because it's part of a larger effort uh, by Republicans in many venues to stop talking about diversity and inclusion. We know that the state's uh, uh, education task force has now said we're going to stop using the words diversity in uh, teacher training and that sort of thing. And it, it's what's troubling about this is that what we've watched over the last decade is an effort for people to pay more attention to the importance of talking about diversity and inclusion, and yet now we're heading in the other direction uh, if Republicans have their way. Well, I don't know, Bill, because um, when we listen to um, uh, Representative Clyde talk about, you know, keeping the Confederate names for Lake Lanier and for Buford Dam, um, you also have to realize that he is saying it's okay for us to continue with that particular part. Um, but then we also understand that 
Lake Lanier used to be a bedrock of a black community that was flooded in order for there to be a reservoir for the state of Georgia, for us to go and to have fun at the lake on, you know, a town that was predominantly black. I think what they're doing when they're saying that we don't want to talk about diversity and inclusion, we don't we don't want to talk about the things that have uh, contributed to a continuation of a society, you know, that had this dominance um, and that had oppressed and or attempted to wipe out um, peoples, whether it is indigenous people or whether it's former enslaved individuals. So there's this interesting dynamic of maintaining a particular history uh, because the victors wrote the history. Um, and let's let's literally whitewash um, anyone else in the state of Georgia. Um, Margaret, go ahead and jump in. Yeah, I, I'm going to um, segue to one of the topics that um, we discussed about bringing up on the show, Bill, which is the, I mean, the, the larger topic is that there's a certain segment of Georgians and Americans who believe that history is static. And in fact, we are uncovering new things about our history, new facts about our history, new stories about our history all the time. One of those things, again, back here in Savannah, is that we in Savannah have always um, carried the shame of, of being the host of one of the largest slave auctions in history. We called it the weeping time. More than 400 enslaved people were sold as a way to pay off a, uh, a planter's debts that he he accrued by gambling. Well, now we've just learned in this in the last three months that a larger slave auction was held in Charleston. It's something that a graduate student at the University of Charleston found out simply by reviewing old, old newspapers. And I, I mean, what do you, I, I, I think that for people who think that we know everything that's happened in both our own lifetimes as as opposed to 100 years ago or 2000 years ago, that, that you know, the facts show us every day that that's simply not true. And the idea that we can't roll with that, or the idea that we can't also be, be flexible enough to accept that with grace is one of the problems that we have now um, getting along with everybody. Um, uh, Margaret, I really would recommend, and perhaps Chase and Natalie, we can post a link to this on our social media. That story is really exceptional and well worth reading. I think the Charleston auction auctioned off more than 600 human beings. Isn't that right, Margaret? That's correct. And it, you know, we we forget about inconvenient facts and sometimes it takes uh it takes, you know, the the spirit that moves through us in all mysterious ways to remind us of what actually did happen in the past. Um it's human nature to try to forget trauma. It's human nature to try and and you know shave off um uncomfortable and unattractive edges to to our own stories um and our own communities. But I think it is the value of all of us here on the panel that we bring to our communities, whether through journalism or through academics, to realize that it is a complex, ever-changing world that we live in. And we should all be curious enough to know more about it. Audrey, before we have to get to a break, I said there were two uh, items that have been inserted into appropriations bills that I, I was particularly struck by, one of them about diversity. But the other is this notion that Military installations would be banned from having drag queen story hours for children. And, and the reason I focused on that was it is part of 
what what is happening in terms of uh, this backward sliding over issues like sexual identity, uh, like drag queens, uh, like transgender uh, individuals, like LGBTQ rights. Again, these are areas we thought we'd made genuine strides on, especially since the U.S. Supreme Court uh, validated same-sex marriage. And yet, and yet, we are really backsliding uh, right now because Republicans have seized on these issues uh, to play to their base. And once again, very quickly, I'll just add, you know, the fact is in political campaigning today, especially on the Republican Party, remember, Republicans don't like to spend money, um, you know, and one might argue they don't like to solve really complex problems because instead they'll focus on something that they can do which is taking away the ability for someone to do something um, that costs them very little. They don't have to pass any laws that, um, you know, uh, cost anything. And, and these are issues that they think will resonate. I mean, sadly, um, they pick on low-hanging fruit that affects very few people and really doesn't solve any problems for the, the general public. I mean, we have so many issues. You know, they talk about crime. They talk, I mean, and we talk about things like poverty. But all they seem to be talking about on Fox News and at rallies are notions about trans individuals. Um, and I would I would guarantee that, and, and protecting children, right? Um, and those are things that maybe we have to have a discussion, things change. Um, I'll remind everybody that both parties have had really bad ideas in the past, talking about things like eugenics and so on. And all of this attention is being given without real deep thought. And that is problematic for public policy. Uh, Tamara, I got I got one more thing I want to ask you about, but we got to get to a break. But let me do it before the break. Um, it, it, as part of this conversation, I was struck the other day uh, reading an Elise Stefanik tweet in which she said to her constituents, I really want to hear from you on the issues that matter to you today because the Republicans are now in the majority in the House and have the opportunity, as she didn't use the word, but essentially said, to defeat the Democrats. That, that struck me as incredibly incongruous issues as opposed to uh, somehow owning Democrats. I mean, but isn't that a, a perfect kind of summing up of where we are in politics today? Yes, yes, exactly. All right, <laughs> let's get to our final break. Back with more in a minute. Here we are in the last week of June, and we're kind of eagerly waiting for the Supreme Court to drop some of the most important rulings of this session. Um, one of them tomorrow, of course, is affirmative action in terms of college admissions. The challenge is that universities should stop using race as a, a criteria for admitting students, uh, should reduce its importance and eliminate it, perhaps. and. Um, I, in a minute, I want to ask our political science professors how what their thoughts are on this because they're in colleges. But what's interesting tomorrow is the Wall Street Journal published a piece the other day pointing out that two justices on the court, uh, who will be on opposite sides of this matter, we imagine, Sonia Sotomayor 
and Clarence Thomas were, in fact, beneficiaries of affirmative action in college admissions. Um, and here's what the journal said. Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor both were pulled from underprivileged backgrounds into selective colleges and then Yale Law School, graduating in the 1970s from elite institutions that following the civil rights movement had begun aggressive recruitment of minority students. Just a interesting irony in all of this, Tamar. Yeah, and it'll be interesting where the two of them and all of all of the justices come out on these two cases, which have to do with race conscious admissions policies at Harvard and then UNC, which is a public institution. Um, and I mean, their rulings could fundamentally reshape how colleges look. I'd love to hear what Tammy and Audrey have to say about all of it, but it could be a real seismic shift um, in in who comes out of our elite institutions. Tammy. Um, so a few things, I think, with uh, Clarence Thomas, if history, uh, if it passes prologue, we know how Clarence Thomas is going to rule on this particular matter um, and not just in his admission to to college and to post um, graduate school is also to every single employment opportunity up to and including being selected to be. Um, on the Supreme Court, as uh, George H.W. Bush noted, that it's a Black man to replace a Black man, Third Good Marshall, who was the first Black man to be put on the Supreme Court. I also am, am very curious if the court rules against affirmative action when it comes to college admissions. I'm very curious if that's also going to mean, mean legacy admissions, because that is the other side to um, to race being um, a component when it comes to college admissions. If you have legacy res um, admissions, then those legacy admissions look the same. And so you're continuing on a particular uh, point of view for that particular college or university. Um, I also want to say from the way that the country is shaping up in terms of its um, in terms of its racial and ethnic diversity uh, to limit um, who gets into certain institutions, particularly those institutions that are prime um, spaces to get into some of the most prestigious employment opportunities, whether it's in the public sector or private sector, to limit the number of people um, from a racial and ethnic background who could be admitted into those spaces or allow the opportunity to be in those spaces means that you will uh, continue to have um, either a, a limited um, uh, group of people to be in high level positions in government as well as the private sector, or you will then force um, government public sector, as well as private sector, to think beyond the ivory towers that are in um, higher education and to look to other institutions who may not be, you know, um, a Harvard or a Yale or a Princeton, yet who have fantastic programs like University of Georgia and Georgia State University, who have the, the spaces for um, uh, top talent who just are not seen. Um. So... Audrey, you're welcome to comment on the actual facts of the case. Um, but maybe an interesting question to ask you would be, what do you see when you look at the diverse body of students at the University of Georgia? 
and the value of having a diverse student body? Well, let me just begin by saying that we are a state institution. The most important mission that we have is to teach and to do research and to do public service to serve our state. And you don't serve your state if you don't encourage everyone to be able to participate in what is a college education. You're training the people, the leaders, the workers, the innovators of the future. And I've been at the University of Georgia for over 20 years. And let me tell you, it has been a slow road to increase that level of diversity across racial categories, but also to bring in students who are first generation, who are rural, and we're doing that too. And I would say in the end, even if the court decides that they are going to do away with affirmative action. People in leadership in this state need to know that the people going to college needs to reflect the people in your state. You want to retain them. You want to build strength. If you cut programs that actually get people education and people of all different backgrounds, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting the nation, the state. I mean, it's ridiculous, but we'll find other ways. I mean, use poverty. Use poverty as a way to get people into school because we know because there has been historical and, you know, systematic discrimination over time that there are more people of color who are poor. Um, you know, you can use all kinds of indicators, just like we don't have to say we're being inclusive. We can say, we're being thoughtful. We're being kind. There are all kinds of words that you can use. And people get stuck on the words like affirmative action. And the public does too. They have negative connotations about affirmative action, but they don't really understand a lot of what it does. And it's benefits to them. Well, th thank you. Um, we will watch and see. There's just high anticipation about at least four major rulings that are expected in the next few days. And of course, as they break, we'll talk on them Thursday. In fact, we have a panel of our favorite constitutional law experts coming on in hopes that we'll have some uh, to talk about. Um, so we're almost out of time. Uh, you heard me in the headlines to the show mention Ron DeSantis stumbling in New Hampshire. We're going to have to save that for tomorrow because, as usual, my time management has not worked out the way I wish it would. Um, but uh, I will say this. Uh, both Trump and DeSantis are in New Hampshire today. DeSantis is having his own independent event on the day that Trump is speaking to the most important group of New Hampshire Republican women. It's an annual event, and they are furious that Ron DeSantis is choosing to compete against their event. You don't want, if you're a candidate for president, to get New Hampshire Republican women angry at you. That's just one of the ways in which DeSantis has been having some troubles up in New Hampshire. And it's worth talking about because it tells us something about who he is maybe as a national uh, candidate. But now we'll get to that tomorrow. In the meantime, I am so grateful to you, Audrey Haynes, Tammy Greer. Have fun with the triplets over the weeks ahead in the summer. Tamar Hallerman, uh, Margaret Coker, great conversation. Enjoyed having you here enormously. We're back with another brand new show, new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and yes, be good to one another. Bye, everybody.